Despite the fact that they are one, perfectly mutual in their self-understandings, perfectly aware of the mind of the other, perfectly in sync in every conceivable way, I want us to imagine a conversation between the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit prior to the mass indwelling you and I know as the first Pentecost. This would be sometime in the ten days between the ascension and that morning. Spirit, Jesus says, unless they are born of water and of you, they cannot enter into our kingdom. You must cause them to be born all over again. Yes, says the Spirit. For the thirsty have come to you, and believing in you, they have drunk. Now I will go to them and be the flowing rivers of living water that will flow out from their hearts. Will you be their constant help? Jesus asks. I will, returns the Spirit. I will be with them forever. I will abide with them, within them. They will never not be with you. I will carry your very spirit into their spirits. Will you teach them? asks Jesus. I will, responds the Spirit. I will teach them anything they wish to know. I will bring to their remembrance everything you've ever said to them. And I will be their living peace. And what of the ones who do not know me? Jesus asks. To them I will bear witness, the Spirit says. How will you do that? asks Jesus. By bearing witness from within those ones who are ours, the Spirit replies. Their lives, filled with me, filled with you, will convict the world of its sin, show your righteousness, and point away from judgment. The lives of your friends will be just as your life. Jesus is quiet a moment. My friends, he says softly, I miss them already. Oh, but you need not, the Spirit laughs, for I will be with them, guiding them always unto you, unto the truth, and I will whisper to them everything you want them to know. Whatever I hear you saying, I will say to them. I will glorify you by taking what you are, who you are, and pouring it into the inner lives of those friends of yours. Nothing that is yours will not be theirs. Jesus smiles. Well, in that case, shall we begin? My friends, the reason I give you this little imagined conversation which, by the way, in case you were feeling like I was uh, fictionalizing heretically, is just really a series of scriptures, all from the Gospel of John. The, the reason is that I'm not sure we properly understand the radical quality of the plan of God starting at Pentecost. Here's what I mean. Prior to the coming of Jesus, and prior to that day, Pentecost, the whole of humanity was living in one of two camps— they were either, one, utterly ignorant of the way of God, or two, pursuing God entirely through the auspices of religion. Let me define those. Ignorance is, quote, 
a lack of knowledge or information. While the basic definition of religion is, quote, a system of belief or worship. So, prior to the incarnation of Jesus, who personally showed us a whole other way, and prior to his personal inhabitation of his friends, who were soon to share his spiritual life, all of humanity was either lacking knowledge or information about God, or, and often with a great deal of pride about it, approaching God in their own strength by a system, by ritual. Again, all of humanity not knowing God or not knowing Him in the way He wanted to be known. So what was His radical plan? To confront both groups, all of humanity, through humans filled with His own Spirit. Uh, To invest men and women with the very Spirit of Jesus so they could represent His way to everyone, everywhere, every day. So, I want to paint two pictures for you, one of each of those groups, on two contiguous days, and I want you to feel the radical nature of what I am talking about. So, imagine a man unable from the moment of his birth to walk, being carried through the streets of Jerusalem toward the temple. It is first thing in the morning. The friend who carries him carries him every single day, at the same time, through the same streets, and they arrive at the same called beautiful gate of the temple to the same scene. Uh, Vast crowds of other beggars, of temple merchants preparing their wares, of priests and Levites hurrying inward to perform their same duties. The man's legs dangle like a child from the arms of his friend. They weave in and out of the shadows and light until he's set down at his usual spot. All he has are the tunic and sandals he wears, plus the high-rimmed clay bowl with which he'll ask all comers for a coin or two if you can spare them. This man is a picture of all those unaware of God. Solitary, within the condition of the cards he's been dealt, as we often hear said, making the best of what's available to him given his situation, yet tragically stuck, immobile, simply going through the motions of his personal experience of the human condition. If he had ever heard of Jesus, it hasn't yet had any effect. He will be sitting on the hard cobblestones from early morning till his friend comes to retrieve him at dusk, always the same, and he anticipates going through these same painfully pointless motions until he's dead. Friends, you don't understand how much of humanity feels the same way as this man. It's why the book of Ecclesiastes may be one of the highest philosophical statements ever written. Well, seven hours in, the man looks up. A pair of friendly-looking young men are coming along past. They seem to be deep in some sort of conversation. Our begging friend scoots himself forward, holds high his bowl. Sirs? 
Both men stopped short. They turned to face him. One of them, the one with the beard, stoops down. The beggar, suddenly embarrassed by the physical proximity of the man, by the intensity of his gaze, looks away. Look at us, the man says. The beggar is suddenly filled with the hopeful feeling of a donation. The bearded man stares into his eyes. He says, I don't have any silver or gold. Here our begging friend's heart sinks. But, the beggar's hope rises again, what I do possess, I will give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, walk. And you already know what happens. My friends, the Holy Spirit has been put in you so that that interaction would be the consistent persistent interaction characterizing your whole life. You, knowing Jesus, filled with and trusting the very Spirit of Jesus, are meant to be embodying Jesus to those not yet knowing Him. And if it requires their healing, so be it. You are walking down the street, as far as you know, being Jesus. That is the first radical quality of the Holy Spirit's plan. His way through you of reaching the lost. Now, how about the rest of humanity? Those thinking they're going to get there religiously. Well, the next day, after those two young men, Peter and John, gave an impromptu talk to a large crowd in the temple, after 2,000 people spontaneously begin to follow the way through their words after Peter and John are arrested, thrown in jail, and spend the overnight in a cell. The council, the Sanhedrin, is assembling to try them. These are the very same men who caused Jesus to be handed over to Pilate for his crucifixion. They have, in essence, the power of life and death. And they are also the embodiment of human religion perfectly certain of their self-achieved righteousness, lording it over their fellow man, infinitely more concerned with law than with mercy, and having perfected observance, enjoying the sinecures of their religious power. They are at the top of the hierarchy. To put it most simply, they believe they are closer to God than anyone else, and by their own power. Well, these men, fanned out in their throne-like chairs, most important to least important, with the high priest right at the center. These men are now awaiting those rabble-rousers from the day before. Well, here they come, followed for some inexplicable reason by a beggarly-looking man who is dancing around at every step. Utterly unseemly, the council is thinking. Do you recognize our friend from the day before? The Sanhedrin, I, these three. The high priest finally speaks. By what power and in whose name have you done this thing? The healed man, meanwhile, is shifting his weight, foot to foot, delighted. And a change is coming over the countenance of the man called Simon Peter. His eyes open wide. 
There's a, a glow that comes over his face. There is an intensity, a fire that burns within him as he speaks aloud these words. Leaders of the people and elders, if we are being called in question today over the matter of a kindness done to a helpless man and as to how he was healed, well, then it is high time that all of you and the whole people of Israel knew that it was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the one whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. It is by his power that this man at our side stands in your presence perfectly well. He is the stone which you builders rejected, which has now become the head of the corner. In no one else can salvation be found. For in all the world, no other name has been given to men but this. And it is by this name that we must be saved. One can imagine each of the men of the council, the Sanhedrin, shifting uncomfortably in their seats. And Luke, the writer of Acts, then writes this. When they saw the complete assurance of Peter and John, who were obviously uneducated and untrained men, they were staggered. And they recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. My friends, our entire job is to be with Jesus. To delight in him. To encounter him. To learn to know and obey his words. To come fully under the power of the cross and the resurrection. And then knowing him, we are meant to be so filled, so utterly possessed by his spirit that we give the lie to all religion, all religiosity. There is no man-made way to get to God. There is no magical incantation, no theological position, no perfect orthodoxy that saves. Only Jesus of Nazareth saves. The one we've been with and the one whose spirit we now have. My friends, it is for us to live the way of Jesus, to show the power of the Holy Spirit so that the whole world may see. Now, what do you say to that? Thanks so much for listening.